Kazuo Ishiguro is the author of Remains of the Day and When We Were Orphans. His newest novel is Never Let Me Go. Welcome to the show, Kazuo. Hello. It's very nice to be here. I'd like to talk to you about the element of the fantastic that is in all of your novels, in that they all take place in the speaker's minds. So I'd like to talk about how that filtering experience happens within your novels. Well, I I guess after my first novel, I had this kind of odd revelation, which which was prompted by my writing a, a short screenplay for British television. And it occurred to me that my my novel and my screenplay weren't very different in the ways that they worked, technically. And this gave me a kind of sense of dissatisfaction, because I thought novels, if they were to survive as a as a viable art form, they had to offer readers a unique experience, something actually very different in kind from the kind of experience they might have by switching on their television set or going into the cinema. And so from there on, I tried to develop a style that was quite interior. Because this is, you know, I, I thought the novel was very strong here, where perhaps film, a film drama, was weakest. Um, in books, you can go deeply into a, a character's mind, and particularly a narrator's mind, and into his or her unconscious as well. So that's kind of how I began that journey. And at times, that's taken me to kind of weird places. Tell us a little bit about the part that memory plays in your novels? It's played different parts at different points in my career. For a long time, I was I was fascinated by the way people try to assess their lives when they've arrived at a certain point, usually late in life, and, and something has gone wrong. They, they can no longer continue to hold on to a cherished, cherished view of themselves as people of achievement and people who led good useful lives and very reluctantly they start searching through their memories for how they arrived at this point they go right the way back through their lives so at least for the first three novels I was fascinated by this process a a journey through memory and in fact I guess I was very much drawn to to the texture of memory and telling a story through memories It, it was a quite different thing to just sticking to the chronology of the plot um, you know, this happens, this happens. If you're telling the story through a person's memories, there's that whole fog around every episode. You can also place an episode from 30 years back right next to an episode from you know, 24 hours ago. And the narrator does this and the reader wonders, well, what's the significance of these two scenes being next to each other? And why has one prompted thoughts of the other? You know, are, are these memories accurate? Are they being bent around to to preserve some sense of dignity, or, or is it a pretense? And then all the time there's that tinge of nostalgia and, and emotion about memory. So, so for all these reasons, I, I've, I've loved the whole way of you know, going, going through memories. Could you tell us a little bit about how memory plays a part in creating an aura of the fantastic in your novels? Because you're not really seeing reality. You're seeing a filtered version of reality. That's the only kind of reality I'm interested in. Often in, in my books, I'm not, re- I'm not so much interested in what really happened to somebody. I'm more interested in what that person says happened to him or, or to her. I'm interested in, in that subjective, personal account. And that, that's shifting all the time. So, so sometimes in my books, 
somebody will, will give an account of something that happened in the past. And then later in the book, they'll give a, a slightly revised account of that same meeting. But the element of the fantastic, well, I don't know. In my earlier books, I tried to get memory to, to work in those books in much the way that I thought memory worked for any one of us. It's only the ambiguity of memory that that makes it slightly once removed from reality. But I would say from my fourth novel onwards, a novel called The Unconsoled, I started to um, enter into a slightly different terrain. Memory was still involved. I was trying to create a new kind of landscape that wasn't entirely realistic. The Unconsoled, and to some extent the, the novel I wrote after it, When We Were Orphans, they feature a landscape that, to some extent, accommodates and bends to meet the kind of irrational desires and wishes of the narrator. Can I just tell you about what I was trying to do in the book called The Unconsoled, which is a good example of a, a setting that is slightly removed from reality. It seemed to me at the time that there were two standard ways in novels in which a character's life was laid out for the reader. Uh, option one seemed to be the kind of the, bi the chronological biographical way, the kind of David Copperfield type of way of telling. You take a character in childhood or you know, early life, you you watch them grow older, and then you you know you finish the novel at some point. Very straightforward. Another way to to tell the reader about a character's life, as I did in books like The Remains of the Day, as we, we've been discussing, you can do it through memory and flashbacks. You take the character to, usually at a late point and then have them remember key episodes from the past. And eventually the reader puts together a picture of the, the entire life. These seem to be the most common ways. But I've always been fascinated by the possibility of an option three that I, haven't really, I hadn't really seen done before. And I started to experiment with this third way of telling. This question, how do you tell the reader about a character's life? I thought, well, why not... Why not try this? Why not have a character just turn up in some place? He's a stranger there, a town, let's say. And he would encounter people who existed in their own right, local people, you know, the, the postman, whoever, who, who lived in this town. But at some deeper level, these people would be incarnations of himself at earlier points in his life. He'll meet a young man who's an adolescent who's, who's basically going through what he was going through. He'll meet a couple who, who are more or less his parents. But they wouldn't literally be. And in order to, to make this technique work, I thought, I thought I could borrow from the language of dream because I, that seems to me what we often do in dream. We, take, we appropriate faces and figures that we run into and make them stand in or act for people who have a much deeper significance in our lives. Let's talk a little bit about your first novel that worked off of a genre when we were orphans. That played a little bit off of the 1930s detective novels that are called cozies, didn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was fascinated by the idea of the great detective as they appeared, you know, the great detectives featured. Those cozy, usually English, mystery novels flourished just after the, uh, the Great War, the First World War in England. And that fact alone uh, intrigued me. Why at a point in, in British society when, when a generation had gone through an utter trauma? I mean, it, the, the, it wasn't just another war. I, mean, I think a whole 
a set of assumptions about how society worked, how the world worked, collapsed in the Great War. Uh, a trust had been eroded and broken, uh, and people had 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 suffered enormously. You know, a lot of families had lost people who died and so on. Why at that moment when that society has been brought face to face with such a harsh reality about the 20th century, why did that kind of mystery novel, which seems so removed from what the people have just learnt. I mean, why did that flourish? And 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 uh, the obvious answer that at one level, yes, it's, it's a kind of escapism, a great need for escapism. They were massively popular, those novels. But what intrigued me was what kind of escapism is this? And I was very fascinated by that figure of the great detective who comes into a, usually a village or community where everything usually used to work perfectly, and an idyllic kind of yeah in a garden of eden type of village where everybody knew their place and and just one thing has gone wrong you know somebody is murdering somebody you know? and the message of those books seems to be that all you need is a great detective some one remarkable force to come in from the outside and just pick out that source of evil and then order will be restored again in the garden and indeed, some of those mystery stories, there's very little sense of trauma at the end. Once a detective has unmasked the killer, uh, everyone goes back to being terribly happy again, despite the fact that maybe five people have been murdered in two weeks in a tiny English village. You know, everybody's happy, and uh, you know the the alcoholic has you know has renounced drink, and the young man who's going astray has decided to put his life together. I mean, it's not just the uh, killer who is unmasked all the other plot strands the red herring strands they all have happy endings as well and i found this in the context in this in the historical context i found that genre very touching for that reason and quite poignant it it was a great longing to say if only you know, the world was like this if only a great detective could come and put our world back to the way it used to be. But I think there's always an acknowledgement in those mystery stories, in their very artificiality, that this is escapism, this is fantasy. And how did you change that with your work? Well, I, I just played off that to some extent. In When We Were Orphans, we have, we have a, a, a very am, ambiguous central figure who believes he is such a great detective. And he wants to believe that He's been given this mission to to literally you know, save the world. Um, he's kind of got. He's kind of taken, I guess, these mystery novels slightly literally uh, and to heart. What's happened to him is that his, his private, small private world has collapsed at some point. His parents get kidnapped. He, he becomes effectively an orphan, and and he somehow equates this with the huge crisis that's enveloping the world just before the Second World War. And he he thinks well he could become a great detective. Well, he 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 becomes a detective, you know. But he thinks he should become a great detective. And in the same way, he could if he could only unmask the the murderer figure uh, who is causing all the mayhem in the world. He could save the world, and his parents would be returned to him. It's it's a you know, it's a kind of irrational urge that 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 drives him on. Your next novel has a really gorgeous glowing late summer feel to it. Tell me why you decided to use that against such a dark backdrop. The glowing feel probably 
is mainly confined to the, the first third when we're remembering childhood. And then the world of the book probably, you know, the, the sun disappears. Um, after that, it's kind of gray and bleak, the landscape, you know, literally. The first third of the book is about childhood. It, it literally takes place in a kind of boarding school where these kids are sealed off. And we follow the central characters from the time when they're small children to early adulthood. And in many ways, my what interests me about nostalgia is its relationship to to childhood and and the path that we all made out of childhood into adulthood yeah I, i'm very aware that nostalgia has a has a bad press generally and i think these days and i think quite rightly so often it's a flabby sentimental unrigorous kind of feeling emotion at the individual level and in fact at, at, often at a political level it's it's used in a quite a sinister way it, it's, it's often used to attack change and progress and new things by creating some sort of distorted, cozy view of what what the world used to be like before the people you're trying to attack came along. So I think it's quite right that we're cautious about the use of nostalgia to manipulate people into certain positions. But in its purest form, I think nostalgia is an important emotion and it's a very beautiful emotion. When my daughter was younger, let's say when she was two, three years old, I was always very conscious of the fact that uh, my wife and I kept her in a in a bubble uh, and we deceived her. Uh, you know, we deceived... We wanted to tell her that the world was a much nicer place than than it actually was. And and when I walked around in the streets with my daughter, it, it struck me how quickly total strangers who were passing by would just... would support you in this conspiracy you know that they'll they'll smile put on a funny voice i guess my daughter grew up in that bubble that the adult world instinctively wanted to keep her in uh, and i think that's right you know, i think all of us if we were fortunate you know um, must have had such a bubble uh, but we were deceived to some extent you know we were told that the world that awaited us was was a kinder more gentle place than we eventually found it to be and I guess the role of adults, of guardians, parents, is to gradually, as as, a, as a kids get older, we have to gradually drip in, drip feed information into that bubble, so that the the transition out of that bubble is is not traumatic. But perhaps we all sense some disappointment when we arrive in the real world, and maybe we remember somewhere, at least emotionally, what it felt like when we thought the world was a sweeter place, even though we actually intellectually know that 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 was a deception. And so sometimes I think it's important to hold on to that emotion or to evoke that emotion, which which I call nostalgia. Because in some ways it it has the same relationship to, to the emotions that idealism has to intellect. It's, it's a way of um, holding in our hearts and minds a, a world that is better than the one we actually live in. And even though we know it, it, was, a, it was an impossibly better world, I think it's, it, it's helpful to, to have that memory of when you thought the world was better and kinder. Your latest novel, Never Let Me Go, has been termed a work of science fiction. But it's not really science fiction, is it? 
Well, these labels don't worry me too much. There's a science element in it.、Uh, there's a dystopian landscape, which is、uh, which is a backdrop. It probably won't be necessarily spoiling it too much for your for your listeners if if I if I just just say the premise in one sentence, which is that you know, it follows the 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 lives, the loves, the relationships, and friendships between principally these three kids who grow up to be young adults, but they gradually discover. Who they are, which is that they're they're cloned children, and they've been cloned for a particular purpose, which is for to, to supply organs for an organ donation、um, program. The entire world of the novel exists just in the world of these cloned children, so they don't really have perspectives that go beyond it. They don't question the program. They just 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 as we accept that you know certain things are the way they are. You know, that, for instance, that. After seventy, eighty, ninety years, we can expect to die.、Um, these kids, in much the same way, accept that after twenty-five or thirty years, they'll die, and you know that their fate is laid out for them. They don't worry about how to run away or how to rebel against the system. For them, that's a given, and they ask all the big questions that we ask over the course of our lifetimes. But for them, it's compressed and made very urgent because the time is so short. So, all right, you, you can call it science fiction if you like. In that, I've used a, a scientific framework or, or or landscape in which there are scientific possibilities that don't exist right now, despite the fact that I've set the book in the nineteen nineties. You know, I've just imagined a world where there have been breakthroughs in science that haven't in in fact taken place. So you could call it science fiction. I, I don't know. I mean, I I worry less about categories and genres. You know, I. I use whatever I can, and and I don't read very much science fiction in books. But it, in the cinema, a lot of the films I really admire are what might be called science fiction. And and it's interesting. Some of the greatest film directors ever have often made science fiction films, like Stanley Kubrick, or Andrei Tarkovsky, or Fritz Lang in Metropolis. I'm kind of used to that. You know, that ambitious art, reaching out and using science. To create what? All right, if you want to call it science fiction, fine. But I mean, it might not fulfil a lot of the genre expectations of sci-fi fans. Tell us a little bit about some of the other films and works that you've read in the genre that have interested you or that have inspired you. As I say, in in movies, it's really that it's it's there that the use of science or the use of fantastic worlds, fantastic settings, have always struck me as.、Um, As fascinating, and and if you're a, if you're a storyteller like me, I latterly particularly I've I've had a kind of a problem with settings. Whichever setting or location I choose to bring my story down in, I find that it has certain limitations. If it's you know if I choose a historical setting, it's never quite the quite the right match for what I'm wanting to do. And I've looked at sci-fi. Films, particularly like like two thousand and one, a space odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, or Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky, Metropolis by Fritz Lang, as well as the what you might call the the more more genre conscious sci fi movies of people like Ridley Scott, the Alien series, you know, or, or, or the way James Cameron makes his movies, the, the Terminator movies, or or the, the the second Alien movie, which is called Aliens. It, it, it's very interesting how how metaphor is used, 
and how just because you enter immediately enter into a fictional landscape where the usual expectations of realism are announced to have been abandoned right from the word go, I think the reader or the viewer is, is obliged to work harder. There's always this question, so where am I? How does this world operate? And I, I find that quite an exciting place to put the reader. And in my latest book, I mean, as I say, although it's not sci-fi in any conventional sense, I've tried very much to put the reader in, in exactly the same position that these young children are in, are in. They don't know how the hell the world around them works, and the reader doesn't either, because they sense that this isn't like a realistic novel. There's some kind of strange landscape. Now, they don't know what the rules are. You know, what is going on here? Is there some kind of you know, nationwide or worldwide program or some sinister intent going on? They don't know. You know they're, they're trying to work things out gradually with little clues in exactly the way that the, the main characters are. And I, I, I find that quite an exciting position to put the reader in. In a sense, you use science fiction as a, almost a mystery, and the mystery to be solved is what is this world and how does it connect to ours? I guess so, but I have to say probably what I'm most interested in is at, at, at the heart. I'm interested in what happens to individuals and their relationships. I'm interested in that question, so what does it mean to be human? So in this novel, I can ask that question in an almost literal way because I've introduced the notion that these people are cloned. Their very humanness is challenged in, in the, by other characters. I thought it was remarkably clever in this novel the way that the detailed, careful, precise characterization of the relationships, the way you created the characters, actually plays into the central science fictional question about, as you say, what is human. Well, I think without that, I mean, the, the, the enterprise is deeply undermined. I think one of the powers of fiction is that fiction can give a real sense of... of what it means to be human, because it operates at that emotional level. It asks readers to empathize and feel human emotions. You know, non-fiction, journalism, reportage, all these things can contribute in a much more precise and neater way you know, into discussions about ethical issues or political issues. You can argue your point, you can present evidence, but fiction is... Fiction is very flabby when it, when it comes to argument and polemic. You know, there's no disciplined system of presenting an argument one way or the other or, or claiming where your sources come from. It, it's hopeless when it comes to making some sort of point. But I think fiction is very powerful in that it does give a sense of human experience. It manages to simulate and create in the reader's mind emotions that you you don't usually have in your own life by following the, that of the character. So I think it's... It's a particularly apposite way to to ask this question. You know, so, 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 what what are the things that are important about being human? It's that, you know, and and if your life is actually very limited and curtailed, you know that it's all going to come to an end pretty rapidly. Is it worthwhile working up the energy, the motivation to to tackle the entanglements of love and friendship, and work and creating art? If just in a few years you're going to donate organs and die anyway, and in in a way, I guess I I want the feeling to come over as strongly as I as possible. You know that that 
yes, even if it's short, it, it's worth it. It's, it's what you do while you're here that makes a difference. And for that reason, I, I've, I wanted to focus very much on, on the tender, the, the decent aspects of human relationships in this book. In the past, I've, I've tended to focus off, often on the more negative sides of human behavior, you know, the weaknesses and the fears and the cowardice of certain characters and, crea- and create rather grotesque characters around negative traits, almost as, as warnings to myself and my readers, you know, go down that path, you'll waste your life. This time, my strategy was different. And in an odd kind of way, despite its very bleak, what you might call sci-fi or dystopian backdrop, this was my most cheerful novel, you know, as I was, as I was writing it, because I was trying to celebrate the de- essential decency of people. I wanted to talk to you a bit about the way this novel enables you to strip away the signifiers and also talk to you as a writer now. When you write a book, you know it's going to be translated. You're not just writing for an English audience, a British audience, an American audience. You're writing for a world audience. So I wanted to talk to you about how that perception, that knowledge, does that affect you as you write? Is that part of going to your decision process? Yeah, it is. And I... And it was right from the start. When I, when I wrote my very first novel, probably like most people writing their very first novel, I didn't have a very clear idea of who my readership was. I didn't really believe in my heart of hearts, despite the fact that I had an advance and a publishing contract as I was writing my first novel. I didn't really believe it was going to get published. And I couldn't really quite comprehend what that meant. And so I probably thought my reader was somebody rather like me and, and a bunch of friends I hung out with at that time. And it was, a, it, was a, it was quite a shock when I saw my book come out and I realized that anybody could be reading this. You know, people, the kind of person I would never socialize with would read this book. And then it started to come out in foreign languages and in different cultures. And I had a kind of a panic. And from thereafter, I think I did become very conscious of this fact that this had to play in places with very different social and linguistic assumptions. And obviously, yes, if it's being translated, you know, I had to bear in mind you know, what would and would not survive translation in what I was writing. Now, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing to become that self-conscious so early, but I'm just saying to you that's what happened. And I think there's something about the life of modern writers now that tends to encourage that. I know that if I write a novel, at some point I'll be in some foreign place. I might spend four or five days in, in Denmark, let's say, and I'll be interviewed by a series of Danish readers and critics. And if there's something there that doesn't translate at the linguistic level, or more usually the case, at the cultural level, you know, if I've created characters assuming that, for instance, my readers know all about the brand names of the products that he or she uses, or that they understand the significance of the fact that he lives in a particular neighborhood, as opposed to another one. And then I'm in Denmark, and it's very clear that these things are meaningless there. And so I, I have to explain my novel to these Danes, and nobody but Danes, for four days. Now, when I get home, and I'm writing my next book, alone in my study, at some level those Danes are looking over my shoulder. <laughs> it's not an intellectual position. I'm not prescribing it to any writer. I'm just saying that's what happens. Just as if you're broadcast, if you're told that you have to broadcast a show or, or write a piece for, for an audience in Hong Kong, you'll probably write it differently 
to the way you or broadcast differently to the way you do it if it was just you know a San Francisco or Sa- Santa Cruz audience and uh, you just naturally accommodate in that way and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing I think I think it's good in the sense that it makes me write in a more international way and I think it I am perhaps pulled more towards the universal and the big themes and it takes me away from provincial matters and becoming a provincial writer on the other hand, I do worry that if this internationalizing process goes on, it's like with everything else, you know, like with coffee houses and everything else. I mean, we'll end up with all writers more or less the same, the kind of the, the fascinating, variegated mix of literary cultures or cultures in general around the world. That would fade, and we'll, we'll just have one single gray kind of international literary culture. A kind of an equivalent to kind of Newsweek or Time magazine, which are great news magazines, you know, but they're written in a certain way precisely so that you know, people from all around the world can pick them up and understand them. Um, I think that we'll lose something very vital if we become too globalized in our literature. And I can see even in myself that I am stopping myself writing certain things or writing in a certain way because I, I know it won't play right in Kuala Lumpur or in, in Paris. I wanted to talk to you about your latest novel. It has a lot of interesting analogs and allusions. In a sense, it seems to be a version of the Holocaust in that the carers become the donors. Was this intentional? Was this something you thought of when you were writing it? No, I didn't. I wasn't trying to draw an analogy with the Holocaust. I mean, thoughts of the Holocaust have never been that far from my mind since since I visited Auschwitz about five years ago. And I agree that is one of the haunting, disturbing aspects of the way the whole of the final solution was, was run in, in Germany. It was that the, uh, the, the very people who were murdered were often the people running the show as well. You know, there was a kind of a conveyor belt system. But, of course, if you write a book set in set in a world that is slightly removed from the everyday, I think that immediately frees up that story to be applied in all kinds of ways. It, it, becomes, a, it becomes almost like a metaphor for hire. And, and you, yes, you can apply it to this, you can apply it to that, and that's fine with me. You know. But at the big metaphor for me is something very simple and, and very, for me, very profound, which is the, the, the basic human condition, which is that we're we are all, in a sense, doomed to die, in that we're all mortal. None of us live forever, and we know that, but we push that fact to the back of our minds and try to absorb ourselves in the small triumphs and defeats of our everyday lives. And that's right. If we started to think too much about the fact that we're going to die at some point, I don't think we'd get on with our lives. I don't think we'd have as rich lives as we do. And so, for me, the big thing to apply this metaphor to as far as I was concerned, was, yes, so, yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to lose control of our organs at one point and we'll fade away. Uh, But what are the big decisions while we're here? What matters the most? How do we run our lives? And aren't things like love and art and work, aren't these things worthwhile, even if they don't change that practical outcome in any sense? The central plot device, if you like, the thing that drives the story to a large extent in this novel is this myth that the clone children have amongst themselves. Once they've learnt that their fate is very much set out for them and they have to donate organs and, and complete, which is their phrase for dying, they accept that, they want to do that well. 
you know, they want to carry out their duty well. But a myth goes around that if they fall in love, if two of them fall in love and they can prove it, they'll somehow get a deferral. They'll be granted some kind of reprieve so that they can enjoy their love for a few years. That's at the heart of the actual plot, if you like, of this of this novel. And of course we don't quite have a corresponding myth in our normal lives, but in a way we do. And it touches me that we have these myths about love, that in some ill-defined way love can conquer everything, perhaps even death. And the history of our art and literature is full of such myths. Uh, sometimes, yes, we have full-blown religion, but uh, we all like this idea that if while you're here you can find love or companionship, friendship, somehow the sting of death, anyway, is gone. I wanted to also talk to you about some of the films that have been made based on your work. We've seen The Remains of the Day, The Saddest Music in the World, and you're working on a, a new film. Tell us a little bit about how you feel as a novelist seeing your interior visions translated to the hard, cold fact of film. Well, there's two different kind of experiences for me. There's a whole matter of turning a, a novel that I've written into a film. That's one set of feelings and experiences. <laughs> and then there's writing an original screenplay. And for me, they're entirely different experiences. I've written four screenplays, the latest of which is a movie that will be coming out later this year, in the fall of 2005, and the movie's called The White Countess. It's not an adaptation of any prose fiction. It's this original screenplay, and it's directed by James Ivory with Rafe Fiennes and Natasha Richardson and Vanessa Redgrave. And it was shot uh, entirely on location in Shanghai, and it takes place in Shanghai during the 1930s. As I say, that's the fourth time I've done a screenplay, the first time on that uh, for a big-budget film, if you like. I find that a very exciting process. It, it's a very educational process for me because um, I'm new. I'm relatively inexperienced, and I'm new in, in, in the film world. I'm learning all the time. A crucial thing for me is that I collaborate. I don't think of it as, you know, this is my work in the way that I think of my novels as my work. I'm, I'm just a contributor to a very collaborative process. And it's that very collaborative nature that draws me in. I think one of the dangers of being a novelist is that you work entirely alone without collaborators. And if that goes on year after year, say maybe for three decades, I think there's a big danger. And I've, I, you can see this in many careers. There's a big danger of just stagnation because you don't move on you don't you don't move to that next phase and the third phase that other artists do when they work in music or theater or the cinema and it's often that lack of collaborators that keeps you confined in the little box of your early success so i find this contact with other creative people incredible you know very stimulating the business of having books turned into films is another thing altogether i find and i try to keep out of that as much as possible if people want to try and make a movie from one of my books. And we're very close to, to finishing a deal on my latest book, Never Let Me Go. Some terrific people have been uh, developing uh, my previous book, When We Were Orphans. And so I've been looking at the drafts of the screenplay and so on of these things. But I don't try to get involved. I think it's... I personally find it... I think it's not a good idea for the writer of the novel to, to get involved in the film adaptation. It works in some cases, I know, but often becomes very un unhappy, and I can see why. These are characters that were very much yours and nobody else's when they were being developed for your novel. It's odd, to say the very least, sit in rooms and 
argue with executives and financiers about whether a particular character should be changed completely or dropped or you know, turned from a female to a male or and so on. You know, th There is a natural sense of violation. But I guess if you're being realistic about it, you've got to accept that when a film is made based on a novel, you cannot translate in that exact way that you will translate, say, from English to French. A film works in an entirely different way. And what makes a book successful often will not make a film successful. So it has to be reimagined and recreated so that it can work in its own terms. In this position of book into film, you're really saying to people, yes, I think you're great filmmakers. You know, I would like you to have a go at my book. Just take my novel as raw material and you know, let's hope a good movie comes out of it. I think that's the healthiest attitude for the author of the book. And it's difficult if you're also trying to be the screenwriter and to go through all that material again in a different way. I think it's a really tall order, and I prefer to let somebody else have it and, and run with it. My experience of The Remains of the Day was the, uh, being filmed. That was a very positive one. You know, I, I know many writers who, who don't have such a positive experience. I thought that was a terrific film, and the big bonus was that it seemed to be very loyal in a quotes unquote to to the original novel the saddest music in the world which was released i thought as a beautiful low budget art house film the beautiful thing about low budget is that you have tremendous artistic freedom you know there isn't this pressure to make a, a large amount of money out of it uh, but that was very much a collaboration with the canadian director guy madden uh, most of the script is his it was, it's based on a original script of mine but he he took it away and turn it into a, a kind of film I, I, I've never seen before, and I thought that was extraordinary. And I only let him do that. In that, you know, I, I held the rights to the project for a long time. I only let him do that because when I saw his previous work, I thought he, he, he was a visionary filmmaker, and he made a virtue out of low budget in a way that I've never seen before. And the saddest music in the world is, is very surreal and strange. Talk about fantastic landscapes. You know, that, that is a bizarre, strange, surrealistic landscape, but is poignant and beautiful. I want to talk to you about what you're working on now and the way you develop your novels. Tell us a little bit about how Never Let Me Go came to life and maybe what we can look for in the future from you. The movie of The White Countess has been preoccupying me quite a lot at the moment. You know, because I only finished shooting in, uh, just before Christmas and you know, I was having to rewrite while the shooting was going on. I mean, and then there's been the editing. Um, so a lot of my mind has been focused on that as a, as a creative um, enterprise. Well, naturally, at the back of my mind, I, I have been developing ideas for my next novel, but I'm not that far into it. The uh, theme of memory continues to fascinate me, but this time I want to tackle the theme of how uh, a nation or a whole society remembers and forgets. And and what is the relationship between that kind of remembering and forgetting and the way an individual remembers and forgets? And when is it healthy to suppress memory? And when is it unhealthy? Now, there are times in a nation's history, there, there, there are moments in a nation's life when it's important to just leave the past behind. Otherwise, hatred and conflict will just be passed down through the generations. But there are other times when if you if you suppress some of the horrors of what's happened or some of the tensions, you'll never be able to move on. It's a complex, difficult, fascinating question. And what are the tools by which a nation remembers and forgets? Is it the history books? Is it the popular culture? Is it the museums? Is it just what people tell each other about what happened a generation back? And who controls them? And if you can control a nation's memory, then 
I guess you you controlled its future as well, and that that fascinates me too. Well, we'll be looking forward to that in our future. We've been speaking with Kazuo Ishiguro. His latest book is Never Let Me Go. Thanks. Well, thanks very much indeed.